Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. I have with me two of our brilliant attorneys, Brian Green and Kevin Andrews, who will discuss today's topic, which is the overview of investigations of employers who hire foreign workers by the different federal agencies. For those of you who were uh, had the privilege last month of hearing us speak, heard us speak about I-9 compliance, which affects all employers, today the focus is particularly on employers that hire foreign nationals. By way of background or introduction, recent indictments and federal prosecutions of owners of IT consulting companies have raised the level of concern for many employers of different H-1B workers. The U.S. Department of Labor, i.e. DOL, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, and the U.S. Department of State, or DOS, are still cooperating with federal criminal investigators and U.S. attorneys in bringing charges. Charges may stem either from fraudulent labor condition applications, which are filed with H-1 petitions, where the employer may mention a headquarters work location when, in fact, the person is at a project or a client site that is different, and this is either submitted to USCIS or to the U.S. Department of State when the person applies for the H-1B visa stamping or the L-1 visa at a U.S. consulate abroad. There's, of course, the new proposed Comprehensive Immigration Reform Bill that many of you have been very nervous and excited about. Fortunately, by God's grace, from most of, from most of your perspectives, it is still just a bill. It's not that yet, yet the law, but it makes clear that the government continues to crack down on the IT consulting industry business model, and employers need to be vigilant with compliance. Between fiscal year 2008 and 2010, there was a 400% increase in the number of investigations by federal agencies, and there's been a lot of hue and cry and talk that the Obama administration really plans to hold employers' feet to the fire. So I don't mean to scare anybody, but that is unfortunately the reality because the numbers tell us the truth and tell us that we need to be vigilant as business owners and companies and founders and especially employers hiring foreign nationals. So Brian, since you are one of the most knowledgeable people in the country and that I know you speak nationally and you know regionally on the topic of uh, enforcement, can you just tell us have H-1B-related investigations and prosecutions occurred and which parts of the country? Just a quick, brief overview. Sure, Sheila. Yeah, this is a recent phenomenon. It's developed in the past year or so, but we saw an indictment issued a few months ago in Texas against an IT consulting company for visa fraud, wire fraud, and mail fraud. And that prosecution is ongoing right now. There's no result, but there was an, a, a plea bargain by an IT consulting company owner recently in Florida, and it was uh, pretty uh, eye-opening because that individual was sentenced to 40 months in prison for a, a few different problems that involved H-1B workers and fraudulent addresses and, and labor condition applications. So it's happening around the country. Well, that's if somebody wasn't paying a lot of attention till now, boy, that would scare the heck out of me if I was the owner that was uh, concerned about, especially when you talk shutting down. You talk about money penalties. That's one thing. You talk about debarment. That's another level. And the third level is where you're afraid you may go to prison or jail for this. Um and how do we know that the different agencies, whether it's Department of Labor, ICE, Department of State, et cetera, are cooperating and working together hand in glove for this, Kevin? Uh, yeah, thanks, Sheila. So 
recently, uh, ICE has ICE has an agency called the Homeland Security Investigations, or HSI, that conducts uh, investigations, and they cooperate with various agencies. They actually released a, a press release confirming that they've coordinated with agencies such as the State Department, Department of Labor, ICE, uh, even the Treasury Department in some cases. So when we see situations where there are allegations of visa fraud, you know, immigration attorneys may or may not be accustomed to seeing something like that. But wire fraud and mail fraud and these other kinds of fraud that you would see in other, you know, federal criminal cases, this is an indication that there's cooperation and coordination between other agencies beyond the, the, the scope of just uh, what we would consider to be the core of immigration law. Oh, boy. It seems to be getting from bad to worse. And the only reason I'm laughing, it's nervous laughter, because that is pretty darn scary. Um, What are the kinds of types of problems that are leading to investigations, Brian, that may turn into possible criminal prosecutions? What often shows up on the radar first is a complaint by a former worker for back wages. So the uh, former employee may go to the Department of Labor and fill out a WH-4 form asking for back wages, and that can cause the DOL to send an investigator to the company. And the investigator does not need to have a subpoena or a warrant. They can just go to the company, and the company has an obligation to cooperate. And what we've seen is that when a Department of Labor investigator will show up at the company, they often have a second person with them. It could be an ICE investigator. It could be a Department of State investigator, Homeland Security investigator, and that person may go in with a DOL investigator. Again, no warrant, no subpoena, and they can ask to see all kinds of records, public access files, payroll. That can be a way to um, for the different agencies to gain very quick access and find out if there's problems. We've also seen where employees go for visa stamping or for their visa interview, and the consulate may return a petition or may say send a fraud memo back to another agency saying that there's been these statements given to the consular officer and those statements differ from the petition or they indicate fraud and would you please investigate. All those things can trickle up to the U.S. Attorney's Office and that can lead to an indictment or an investigation. Hmm. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, really the kinds of charges that both Brian and Kevin touched upon were like the wire fraud, the mail fraud, the visa fraud and the money laundering uh, issues. And just by way of a brief explanation, because by God's grace, most of us are not extremely knowledgeable about the different kinds of criminal um, allegations that the government can slap on us, but it's time for us to at least get familiar with what, so that if there is a fear or a threat, you know what it is that they are alleging against us as employers. So what is a wire fraud? Because LCAs are filed with the U.S. Department of Labor online for the H-1B petitions, any LCAs that have a misrepresentation or inaccurate information can lead to a charge of a wire fraud. The Texas indictment that Brian had just mentioned a minute ago claimed that because the H-1B consultants were listed as working at the company's headquarters, but the actual investigation revealed that the workers actually had never worked at the headquarters, but were instead were sent to end-client locations around the U.S., in that case, the government alleged and slapped the person with a wire fraud. What's the mail fraud? Well, similar to a wire fraud, it's on the mail. So because the H-1 petitions are sent to the USCIS, either by first-class mail, U.S. Postal Service, or by FedEx or other courier service, false or inaccurate information or statements that are included in an H-1 or L-1 petition can be the basis for a charge of mail fraud. So now you understand wire fraud, you understand mail fraud. Now third, we go to visa fraud. Just as the name, the way the name is designated, 
false, inaccurate, or misleading information or statement made during a visa interview at a U.S. embassy or consulate will lead to this allegation. If the visa applicants state to the consular officer that, they, that we were told by the company to say X or we were told to say that we're working at the headquarters even though we now find out that we're working at a company because it somehow comes out when they get nervous and their answers don't completely match each other and a slightly experienced consular officer will realize that the two sides don't match and mirror each other, well then it would result in the investigation of the company for violations of visa fraud. And finally, money laundering, which we've seen time and time again in various, various government investigations. If there are any allegations involving the transfer of money from the H-1B worker back to the employer, for example, in filing an H-1 petition, which is a violation of the law in many cases, um, or other ways in which they feel that the person is being asked to pay for certain fees that are illegal, etc., then the federal prosecutors may consider the charge of money laundering. Um, and so, you know, those are the kinds of issues you think and see, you know, hear about. Um, so let's now jump to details with respect to LCAs, um, which, which are filed with H-1B petitions, the U.S. Department of Labor investigations. Um, and I will have Kevin, if I could, start with giving us a brief example of what are the types of investigations that are conducted by the DOL. Yeah, thank you, Sheila. So uh, so up until now, we've been talking about some potential criminal and administrative violations that a company can be found uh, liable for. Uh, but now I want to switch uh, gears here and kind of talk about specifically the Department of Labor conducting investigations. Uh, specifically, what they focus on is the labor condition application. So uh, the types of investigations that Department of Labor conducts uh, within the Department of Labor, there is an agency called the Wage and Hour Division, and they do a lot of uh, uh, wages and employment labor law enforcement, but in within the H-1B program in immigration law, they enforce the attestations that an employer makes on the labor condition application. So they can Department of Labor can in, uh, conduct investigations of the H-1B program, looking at what the company is doing with their with their LCAs, their labor condition applications. <clears throat> So generally what can trigger uh, an investigation from the Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division, essentially it happens one of two ways. The first way is that there is an employee, uh, somebody that files a complaint with Wage and Hour Division, and uh, usually that complaint has to do some, uh, with uh, you know, not paying the, the wages, the required wages to that employee. So that employee would file a complaint to Wage and Hour, and then Wage and Hour can uh, use its discretion to open up an investigation of the company. The Wage and Hour Division can also initiate the, the, an investigation on its own. So they can conduct random investigations or uh, investigations based on specific complaints. The critical thing here, though, is that the investigation period, the initial period that a Department of Labor investigation can cover, is a 12-month window. So typically they're looking for a 12-month window where there are violations, and if there are ongoing violations, that initial window can be expanded. But it's important for the companies to know the limits uh, of a potential investigation based on the company's compliance with the labor condition application and the H-1B program overall. Aha, uh -huh, okay. Uh, just a very basic fundamental question then, Brian. How does a company, how will a company know if somebody's filed a complaint against me, I'm an employer, how would I as a company know that I'm being investigated, that my company or my business is being investigated? Is there a procedure that the government, the Department of Labor has to follow? 
the DOL eventually has to give the company notice that there's an investigation, but usually the way that the company first learns is either they receive a letter in the mail from a wage and hour investigator, or what I see most frequently is that the investigator goes to the company, knocks on the door, gives a copy of the letter to the company owner or the manager, and starts asking questions at that point. So usually there's a letter in writing. It won't necessarily say the name of the worker that lodged the complaint. Uh, that is something that you can learn later through the investigation, or maybe if you have to file an appeal later on, you may learn that, that who the complainant was at that point. Aha, okay. Because the, uh, the impression I got was that they almost never tell you who the initial filing complaint was, though you may get certain other information down the road or down the pike about, um, you know, um, when it was filed or the time frame, certain other criteria that they tend to share with, with you because they never, ever, ever like to reveal their sources for fear that then the source will dry up in the future. Um, and during, you know, um, um, during the investigation period, should the employer, is the employer allowed to file LCAs and will they be, will the Department of Labor approve or adjudicate them? Yeah, there's no, there's no bar to filing LCAs or HME petitions during a DOL investigation. The, the debarment may occur afterwards, depending on the level of the penalty, the finding that the DOL makes. But one thing you have to keep in mind is that the Department of Labor has what we'll call continuing jurisdiction. So any violations or any problems that occur during an investigation, the Department of Labor can expand the investigation up until the present day. So if you continue making the same mistakes on your new LCAs that, that brought the DOL to your door in the first place, you could just be keep making the, the, making the situation worse. So at that point, you should already have an attorney involved working with the company on the investigation, and you should be very careful from that point forward. Okay, sounds good. Thanks, Brian. Um, well, actually, it doesn't sound very good. It sounds terrible from the employer's perspective. Um, Kevin, what specific kinds of violations will the Department of Labor investigator test or review or look for in the documents? Yeah, uh, well, in our experience, uh, the most common thing that Department of Labor is looking for are issues related to paying the required wages. You know, if you have bench workers and if they're getting paid the required wage. Um, issues related to the posting of the labor condition application, uh, issues related to maintaining the public access file. Uh, the regulations are very specific about all the information. There's a lot of stuff that needs to be put in that public access file. So an, uh, an audit of those documents to make sure all of those attestations are being uh, complied with. Uh, we also see uh, issues related to wage leveling. So a lot of H-1 workers, when they're placed at a, at a work site or placed on a specialty occupation, uh, H-1 employers tend to list the, the requirements for the job as something that would be like a level one wage, uh, as you'll see in the, the wage uh, portion of the labor condition application. Sometimes in investigations, we've seen investigators focus on this, uh, this area and say, well, actually, these workers, the kind of work that they're doing is more like level two or level three. So the difference between a level one wage and a level two or three wage might be, you know, $60,000 versus eighty dollars or $100,000. And... <clears throat> the DOL investigator may assess level two or three wages for that particular worker where the company's saying it's a level one type of position. So, uh, so conflicts there and also issues related to inappropriate acceptance of H-1B related fees from the employees. So through 
some kind of you, you know reimbursement pro- scheme or something like that. The the rules require that the H-1B employer pay the required fees and can't seek reimbursement or payment from the H-1 workers. So those are the core areas that we see investigators focus on. Each investigation that we've seen is different, and there is a focus on some areas and uh, com- you know completely ignoring others. Uh, but these are the areas that we see uh, time and time again that the DOL consistently focuses on. Thank you, Kevin. And it makes so much sense. But a lot of times an employer, for example, will try to show level one wage, as Kevin pointed out, for H-1B wage purposes, but then will, because the employee is putting pressure on you as a employer, ask you to file an EB-2 case for the green card and show that the person is pretty much running the entire project or the division or the department. And those duties are so much more sophisticated. And you say, well, yeah, that's the future job. But it actually started, let's say, six months ago. And then they're like, hello, there's a disconnect here. And so that's when you as an employer would be subject to having provided fraudulent or inappropriate or, you know, mismatching information. And hopefully if you have a good lawyer working with you uh, or your in-house immigration team, that they are monitoring that you cannot have a mismatch between your documents. Because remember, again, as we keep telling people all the time, you as employers, whether you're head of HR or the president or CEO of the company, you're signing these documents under penalty of perjury. It's a federal criminal offense to violate the law. And you can't say job duties are A, B, and C for H1 and then X, Y, and Z for the green card so that you can take advantage of different rules and then wonder why you're being subject to an uh, audit and investigation that could pretty much put you in jail and shut your business down. So, uh, Brian, what happens then at the end of the investigation? The Department of Labor will have a final conference with the employer and hopefully their attorney present and explain what violations were found. At that point, the investigator submits his report to his or her uh, assistant district director, and that person signs off on a letter, and the letter is issued back to the company. I call this a findings letter, and it will explain what violations were found, what the penalties are, and if there's back wages, the amount of back wages that must be paid back to the workers. If a employer receives one of these findings letters, it's very important to speak to an attorney right away because you have 15 days from the date the letter was issued not the date received, but the date the letter is issued to get your appeal, your request for a hearing to the Office of Chief Administrative Law Judge in Washington, D.C. So if it takes three days for the letter to get to the company and one or two days to get your request to Washington, D.C., you can see that you really have just a little bit more than a week of time, and that's a week including weekends. So it's very important that you act quickly when you're given a findings letter. If the company does request a hearing, the Department of Labor judges take over, and a lawyer from the Department of Labor is assigned to the case. Hopefully, your lawyer, although some companies do represent themselves, they then enter a litigation phase, and it's during this time frame where negotiations can happen. And importantly, I think for a lot of HME employers, any penalties in that letter do not go into into effect until the appeals process is over. So if they say your company is debarred and you can't have any more H-1Bs, I-140s, PERMs, LCAs, if you file that appeal and you pursue your rights, you can then hold off that debarment for a certain amount of time, but you can't have that unless you go through the formal process. 
Aha. So some companies may, for strategic and other business reasons, decide to postpone or file an appeal, even if they think it's not a really strong case, because they need to get a few more H-1s filed or green cards filed or what have you. Know, you. Premium process H-1Bs, do three-year mm-hmm. extensions, you know, what, what's going on there. But it also sometimes is that the investigator and the district director weren't fair. And if you are not happy with the result, if you file the appeal, you may have a judge or you may have the DOL lawyer give it a second look and say, okay, let's, let's come to some middle ground here. Okay. And I don't mean to put anybody on the spot here, but is it possible that the ALJ could give a decision that was much worse than what the initial officer determined? Or is it generally because you're filing the appeal, uh, there's a benefit for an employer to say, you know what? I might as well do an appeal because the worst that's could have happened is already in the determination letter and hopefully it'll get better. Or could it go either way where it could actually be much worse by filing the appeal? I guess in theory it could be worse, but I think the judges, you'll hear both sides of the story and you'll have a chance to negotiate. You could have a mediation judge be involved. But you know, if but the government's worst position is in their determination letter that they've already given us as the employer, and now we have to determine to say, okay, should I take my chance and file an appeal on this and buy time, or should I just you know, roll over, pay up the penalties and fines because, thank goodness, by God's grace, they didn't throw me into jail or slap me with a debarment, et cetera. No, I would I'd rather talk to an attorney and look at an appeal. Okay. And, you know, again, if the if we as employers are aware of violations and um, before the government brings it to your notice or even while the investigation is going on and we try to correct it, then um, it would certainly help to minimize the penalties. Uh, as employers, we need to take every possible effort to comply with the LCA and the H-1B and the requirements and the documents that we've signed under oath. And in case of past violations, as employers, we may be able to avoid h- harsher penalties if we make what the government considers good faith efforts to comply with the re- legal requirement, notwithstanding the failure to have met all of the requirements. Well, so you know what? Good faith. Keep showing good faith at every opportunity because you can at least hopefully minimize any intentional bad faith um, additional penalties that the government may slap on us. Kevin, what measures should the employer take to avoid the investigations by the Department of Labor? Well, like you said, Sheila, you know, being reactive is good, but being proactive is great. So uh, taking good faith efforts to correct, you know, previous errors and everything is, is, is a good policy. Establishing uh, systems to make sure that there are internal systems so that there are no violations is, is a great policy. So LCA compliance, H-1B compliance, there's a lot of stuff there. Um, and it's it's important to have a clear written policy for the HR person or whoever the, the people that are going to be involved in dealing with that paperwork uh, to make sure that there's a clear uh, in, in, there's clear instruction on what needs to be done. Typically, like with our H-1Bs, when we, uh, when we assist clients with our H-1Bs, we send out instructions about how to assemble and maintain the public access file. And we've tried very much to get that information, you know, as succinctly as possible to our to our clients. But even that is about an eight to 10 page memo <clears throat> explaining each of the requirements that, you know, go along with maintaining a public access file. So I would encourage employers to make sure that they, you know, uh, get the right people uh, looking at this stuff to make sure that on a daily basis that they're uh, in compliance. And, you know, part of that is in- included with that is doing periodic internal audits, uh, you know, retaining the, the public access files and doing a, a periodic audits of those files to make sure that that's, there's ongoing compliance. And then also, you know, some companies have 
um, you know, turnover with their HR or the people that are going to be handling this thing. And we need to make sure that there's an effective knowledge transfer between, uh, you know, the people that are going to be responsible for maintaining these documents, because ultimately the, you know, the owners of the company could be personally liable if they're not in, in a lot of situations. Okay. So, I mean, Kevin, when you ask the, say that the employer needs to pay the proper, you know, wage for the H-1B worker or their other employees so that there's no violation of H-1B laws and regulations, um, you know, it sounds fine and dandy, but, you know, and of course it's like saying, you know, you need to do the right thing, but what if I as the employer do not have a huge chunk of change because I'm barely in this economy not making a whole lot of money and I don't have that kind of cash sitting around in my bank checking account of my company to pay the large amount of back wages to the H-1 worker. What should I do? Yeah, we've seen that where companies receive a findings letter from the Department of Labor asking for $500,000 in back wages, a million dollars in back wages, and the owners say, the company doesn't have the money, we're coming out of a recession, we can't pay it. The Department of Labor has seen this before, and their first step is they may try to enforce that judgment in federal court against the owners. We call it piercing the corporate veil. But Often, the companies don't have a lot of assets. They're, they're maybe an IT, IT consulting company, and their assets are their workers, and debarment will hurt that. But if there's truly no money in the company, what the new trend is is that they will refer the case to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and if there's grounds to bring a criminal investigation, they will try to indict the owners or the managers of the company. And at that point, the, the company owners have a large incentive to try to make a settlement with Department of Labor or make a settlement with the U.S. Attorney's Office to pay back those wages because the threat of going to prison for three, five, seven years is a pretty scary prospect. So I think the prosecutions may be increasing because some of these companies may not have the capital to pay back the back wages. And the Department of Labor's mission is to make sure those workers get paid uh, what their proper wages were supposed to be. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. So it sounds like if you don't have the money to pay up, be prepared to go to prison or jail to pay the penalty. So you know what? We're all going to have to come up with the money, whether we have to beg, borrow, steal, or find some way to, to, to repay that money to hopefully avoid criminal prosecutions. And they're they're trying to forfeit people's houses, the assets of the company, maybe vehicles or bank accounts, but that usually will not cover the back wages. So at that point, when the the well is dry, then they will go and be as forceful as possible using the criminal prosecution and the U.S. courts to to go after people. So you're basically saying cough up the money or else be prepared to go to jail. Well, that's being caught between a rock and a hard place, as they say. Well, so next we move on to investigations by the Immigration Customs Enforcement and the kinds of investigations that ICE conducts that involves employers uh, is typically in two major areas. One is the form I-9 compliance and then second is the raids where um, the, the ICE looks for undocumented or unauthorized workers. Uh, so, Kevin, if I can come back to you, how seriously should the employer take the risk of an ICE investigation. Yeah, uh, well, ICE is uh, its a law enforcement agency. It's the enforcement arm of Department of Homeland Security, and they have the ability to share information with FBI, with federal prosecutors, like Brian had mentioned, the, um, uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office. And there are, uh, there are certainly civil uh, penalties of, involved with noncompliance with the I-9 program, but in addition to that, there are also crim- potential criminal liabilities, but particularly for 
uh, having a pattern or practice of hiring undocumented workers or engage intentionally engaging in uh, document fraud. So document fraud can carry a five-year term of imprisonment. And this is beyond, this is just under ICE, you know, federal regulations. There are, there are other criminal reg, uh, uh, violations that are potentially uh, there too. But under the ICE program, you know, five years of imprisonment for document fraud, potentially six months of imprisonment for pattern or practice of hiring undocumented workers. So uh, compliance with the program is definitely uh, critical because it carries with it potential criminal liability. Okay. And uh, Brian, was there, were there other kinds of penalties that ICE can assess that Kevin may not have touched upon? No, I think Kevin did a good job covering it. My concern is that for H-1B employers, the I-9 penalties may not seem as harsh as the DOL back wage assessments, but ICE is a like a sister agency of Homeland Security Investigations, and that's one of the leading agencies that's driving these indictments. So if you have I-9 problems and you don't correct them, if ICE finds them, in their interviews, uh, they come to the company, they look around and question workers. What An I-9 problem that might be somewhat small could then mushroom into a federal prosecution if the workers are not there, if people have, have forged signatures. So um, an I-9 problem may not seem like a big deal at first, but it could lead to much more drastic problems. On the other hand, if you have a really large company, if you've got 10,000 workers, 20,000 workers, you know, a $1,000 penalty per worker, if all your I-9s are wrong, that could become a very, very stiff penalty. And I don't think any of these companies that we see really want to have federal investigators coming in their offices every week asking questions. It really does disrupt a lot of problems, disrupt the operations. Okay. Uh, well, you know, um, many people think, what is the impact for me if I don't ever hire any foreign workers? Well, I guess first you wouldn't be on this conference call this today if you'd never hired a single foreign worker, presumably. But remember, all employers, whether you hire foreign workers or not, have to be concerned because the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986, or IRCA, mandates the completion of the Form I-9 for all workers, regardless of citizenship or immigration status, if the worker was hired after November 6, 1986. So just something to keep at the back of your mind since we've already talked about it in last month's teleconference. So now we moved from DOL to ICE, and now we are going to move to USCIS, which is U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. So, Kevin, how does the USCIS conduct investigations? Which, off, which branch do they use? So yet another federal agency that conducts investigations that employers need to be worried about is USCIS, and they have an office called uh, FDNS, or Fraud Detection and National Security Directorate. Uh, these, are, these are the individuals that do the site visits. So on the I-129 form, Part 7 specifically, employers consent to site visits, and FDNS is the mechanism that, that does it. So uh, they have a program called the Administrative Site Visit and Verification Program, or ASVVP, that uh, is implemented to conduct these random site visits. Um, on H-1B extension and change of status cases. So per usually these random visits occur within three to six months after uh, the H approval is granted. And they're looking at the site, the work location listed on the I-129, not the LCA, which is why typically we encourage people to, or H-1 employers to update not just the LCA, but the H-1 petition when there's going to be a change in the work location. Um, statistically, what we've seen is that, uh, like in, in, in 2010, for example, FDNS performed over 14,000 site visits, and they took, quote, adverse action on about 1,100 of them, or about 8%. So adverse action might be, you know, issuing a notice of intent to revoke or something like that. Um, 
in addition to uh, the uh, FDNS conducting these investigations, it, it can affect, employ, uh, affect employers because, um, you know, the companies are being the companies would be investigated. The site, the site visits are happening, and it could lead to FDNS referring out to other enforcement agencies. Again, more coordination between ICE, uh, State Department Visa Fraud Unit, and so this can come. This could become potentially an issue not just for the companies' petitions, but also the H one workers when they're going to apply for the visas at the consulate. So it can really complicate matters if uh, the site visits if uh, return with a with an adverse finding. Okay. Uh, I was actually got quite excited when I heard the statistic that you just mentioned that only 8% could lead to more adverse findings, which actually gives me great hope because if I'm an employer, I'm thinking I'll take my chances. 90% sounds pretty darn good. I, I will say, though, Sheila, that uh, that was 2010 numbers. I haven't seen anything more recent than that, but we do know that there has been a trend since 2003 of exponentially increasing these site visits. So that's just 2010 numbers, and I just we haven't seen anything since then to know what the uh, – anecdotally, we know that it's an increase, but we haven't seen the statistics yet. Okay. Uh, and just uh, so that we're all aware, the Fraud Detection and National Security, or FDNS, continues to randomly visit work locations – listed on the H-1B petition. So if the worker has been relocated or moved to a new location and the employer simply updated the LCA and failed to file an H-1 amendment, for example, with USCIS, the FDNS will not be aware of the new work location and the site visit could result in a notice of intent to revoke the H-1B petition of the prior, you know, the H-1B petition's prior approval. Um, so I guess, Kevin, coming back to you, does this mean that filing the amended H-1B petition is required? Well, like I said, it's not its not that it's required by any regulation or any definitive guidance one way or the other. Um, as a practical matter, we think that the most conservative approach is to file the amended petition for the reason that I stated. Uh, the petition is where FDNS looks to for the, the work location for purposes of the site visit, not the LCA. So if the LCA is listing a new lo work location because this person's work location has changed, but hasn't other the job hasn't otherwise changed, if that company files an LCA but no amended petition, FDNS is not going to go to where the LCA work location is. They're going to go to where the, the, the location listed on the I-129. So as a practical matter, the best approach is to file the amended petition for that reason. And just a little tip or secret, you don't have to extend the petition. You can just file the amendment with the dates, and that'll just cost about 320 bucks. That way you don't have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars in extension fees and other additional right. fees as employers. And I think a lot of times people get very concerned. Empl consulting companies say, well, the employee moves every six months. I can't afford to you know, spend five, six, ten thousand dollars $10,000. And if you do it right, hopefully it's just a few hundred dollars instead of several thousands of dollars. Uh, Brian, um, and by the way, we're very cognizant of time. It's just about 30 minutes now, and I know that we try to finish it up, wrap up our discussion within 45 minutes, and we'll definitely be wrapping up in the next 10 minutes or so uh, because we are very, very conscientious that you are in the business of doing what you do, and we want to be mindful of that. But we're here to guide you and assist you. So, Brian, other than filing H-1 amendments, what else can and we as employers do to prepare for the FDNS visits? It's important that each employer have a plan of action to react when an FDNS officer arrives at your company location. It's You need to have a designated point of contact. It could be the human resources manager. It could be the company owner. But someone needs to be designated to meet the FDNS officer. You may want to escort them to a private conference room, get them a cup of coffee and a glass of water. But the idea is to, to respond very quickly to the 
the FTNS officer, have them in a location where they're not looking at, at files or interviewing workers. And then you want to either contact your attorney, whoever's going to be responsible will meet with the FTNS officer. And it'd be ideal if that person has you know, a spreadsheet showing the location of all the HMB workers, because that's what the FTNS officer is going to want to find out, you know, is, is employee A working at the location listed in the HMB petition. So to be ready, and when I say location of every worker, I include all the workers who are working at home, working remotely. If someone's traveling, you need to know literally where are they, their fingers hitting the keys if they're an IT worker. If someone's working from home, that's the location the officer wants to hear about. So be prepared ahead of time. If you have an attorney involved, you know, have them on speed dial and call them right away. But the more you are prepared in advance, the calmer and the more uh, legitimate you will look to the officer when you um, greet them, him or her at the door. Yeah, and as uh, Brian correctly pointed out, the important to ask for the credentials of the person, Xerox it, because you don't know if this is somebody, you know, hopefully it's not a competitor, but it's really the government. You're allowed to ask questions about the person's credentials and uh, keep a detailed checklist or a docu document list of what it is that you've off given to them, because if you don't have details, then later for your lawyer or somebody to try to protect you, it's going to be very, very difficult. So we've gone over the Department of Homeland Security with ICE and uh, USCIS or FDNS, and then we've gone over the U.S. Department of Labor. So we've not touched upon Department of State, but as you know, the Department of State has its own investigative unit called the AFU, sometimes the Anti-Fraud Unit, or the Visa Fraud, VFU, AFU, whatever, which investigates fraud in consular process systems. And there are special agents from the Department of State's Bureau of Diplomatic Security that will investigate cases of visa fraud both at the U.S. consulates and embassies, but also within the United States when they feel that some of the evidence when the spouse or dependents' children will apply for the visa and they say something that's different than what's on the petition, they could use that as a basis for starting an investigation. And, Sheila, we've actually seen where DOS agents have visited IT consulting company uh, locations with the DOL investigator, and you would not know that they were with Department of State until you asked for their, their credentials, as you said earlier. So it's important to know who you're dealing with, but we have seen them partner and do visits with ICE and DOL. Wonderful. Thank you, Brian. And just, you know, as because we are mindful of the time, what I did want to say is it would really, really help you as an employer to seriously consider doing some kind of a self-audit so that you are being proactive instead of reactive, which in a busy, crazy world, we all tend to react to the situation rather than putting our ducks in a row and making sure we're protecting ourselves and our company for the long haul. Um, so in that vein, like Kevin, let me start with you and then go to you, Brian. You know, why should the employer and what, what do they hope to accomplish with the self-audit? Yeah, um, employers in all industries should conduct self-audits because, uh, the, the self-audit is going to establish uh, that particular employer's, you know, baseline for compliance. So your your self-audit is going to let you know, like, are you, are you an A-plus, are you an A-minus, are you a C-minus, C-plus? Where are you in terms of your compliance? I-9s are something that affect all U.S. employers, regardless of whether they're hiring foreign workers or not. And uh, the, the potential fees for non-compliance of I-9s can range. So it's important that employers are c conducting those self-audits. Um, 
the other thing here that we've we've tried to explain is that there is an entire framework, a federal framework of enforcement agencies that span across various departments that are looking at em- employers' various practices with employment, labor, immigration. So there's this there's cross disciplinary you know stuff going on, but also cross enforcement. So just knowing that there's an entire web of of federal enforcement agencies looking at employers' every move with respect to I nines, with respect to employment, with respect to the H one B program, makes it critical for employers to be proactive and do those self-audits to get that baseline. And if they decide and then determine based on that self-audit that more help is needed, well, then it's time to contact uh, an attorney who practices that in that area. Okay. And Brian, if I can have you sort of touch briefly both upon the self-audits, why they are so important by H1 employers, and what is the best way for me as an employer for all the companies on this conference call today uh, or listening to this uh, session, how can they conduct their internal audits to be most fruitful? I think the most important thing is to have an independent resource do your audits. I know companies try very hard to comply, and we're all proud of our work as, as employers, but the idea is that you need someone who is unbiased to come in and look at not just your public access files, your I-9s. When I'm doing audits now, I'm looking to see are any of these trends or patterns that led to investigations by the criminal authorities, are they present here? So when I'm doing an audit, when I'm talking to a company owner, executive manager, I'm asking hard questions. and I want I do it in the interest of the company, in the interest of the owners, to find out what's going on here and is there something here that the authorities would take the wrong way, would they misunderstand what it is, and the audits can help you possibly correct what's gone on before, but certainly you need to find out what's going wrong so you can stop that pattern, create a new procedure at your office so that way you can rest and not have all the stress that you're feeling now. You want to try to, to get it a place where you know the company's okay and you can focus, like you're saying, on your business. Sounds wonderful. Well, you know, we're in the last few minutes, and I just want to say that you and I and all of us as business owners or HR managers or people helping run a particular division or department within the company that's uh, supposed to take care of foreign workers and their you know, compliance with all of the documents and processes and procedures, our goal is to focus on getting our job done so that the company continues to remain profitable and successful uh, and we can focus on our vision and our mission But in an era of government investigations, as these investigations seem to have increased 400-fold in the last couple fiscal years, I think it is equally important not to forget to dot the I's and cross the T's, to be diligent uh, and do it internally, whether you bring outside attorneys and law firms like the lawyers at the Murthy Law Firm who can do a fine job with people like Brian and Kevin on the on your team, or you do it internally. Just make sure that you are being very diligent and proactive. Uh, there's certainly an, a benefit to having an outside objective bird's eye view with someone looking in and being able to clean up the mess before the government comes in, or even when the investigation starts, if you bring in your lawyers and clean it up and do it before the government slaps you with a determination letter of penalties, it comes back to the issue of the good faith compliance that we talked about, which will dramatically reduce your penalties and your fines. So remember, all of that has a very, very important role to play. And as we touched briefly in the beginning, the Comprehensive Immigration Reform Bill has placed a great deal of emphasis on ID business models and really squeezing employers in that industry industry, which of course is extremely annoying and alarming for all of us that either are in that business or deal you know, on a regular basis with that business. Uh, we take this opportunity to 
advise you, to guide you, to mentor you, to be there as your friend and your counselor at law. And we certainly hope that we have given you food for thought and processes and some tips and ideas today on how you can improve the running of your company and really make sure that you are diligent in this process. On behalf of Brian Green, Kevin Andrews, myself, Sheila Murthy, and the entire Murthy Law Firm family, we wish you continued success and growth of you and your business, and we would be honored to team up with you and your business as you continue to deal with all the challenges in the next decade. Have a great day.